Welcome to the Data Strategy Show. My name's Samir Sharma, and I'll be your host for the next 45 minutes. My guest today is Julian Schwarzenbach. Julian helps organizations improve their profitability, efficiency, and quality through better data exploitation, particularly for asset-intensive organizations. He works with organizations to improve the skills of staff, refine processes, develop standards, and implement governance systems. He has been the chair of the British Computer Society Data Management Specialist Group for over 10 years and is a visiting lecturer at Birmingham City University, delivering lectures on data management, data exploitation, and the use of technology. He believes everything can be improved and develops pragmatic and realistic solutions to burning business problems that deliver sustainable benefits to the organization. As a data evangelist, his motto is, data does not have to be difficult. Please do like, share, comment, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks for listening. Julian Schwarzenbach, thank you for coming on to the Data Strategy today, and it's great to see you. How are you doing? Yeah, pretty good. Um, thank you for having me, Samir. It's uh, good to have another conversation. As always, it's good to talk data. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Julian, um, let's get straight into it. Tell me a little bit about your background. Um, yeah, so I'm involved heavily in data management, asset management type work. I've got into it more by, I wouldn't say accident than by design, but I started off as an engineer. So I take more of an engineering approach to things. I'm interested in solving problems. I'm interested in actually getting results rather than use of some clever technology. And so for the last oh, 25, 30 years, I've been involved in maintenance, asset management, data exploitation in a variety of guises, but typically in intensive environments where some of the challenges are maybe different to some other sectors. Um, and it's typically been involved in how to actually deliver benefits from the data. Um, mm -hmm. Because there's, you're always dealing with a brownfield site, you're always dealing with that legacy of the wonder, weird and wonderful things that have happened in the past. Um, <laughs> there needs to be an element of pragmatism. So again, I'm very much a pragmatist. Um, and in terms of the consultancy work I now do, I mean, I've been doing for 12 or so years, something like that since leaving sort of mainstream employment. Um, it's, it is very much about trying to find the right solutions for clients, mm -hmm. the right pragmatic ways forward. And also recognizing that this is a little bit like turning a super tanker and trying to uh, imagine that, yes, we've already pivoted 90 degrees and we're going in a new direction without having a recognition that it's going to take a while and take some effort to actually get the turn going. And the legacy of what's happened in the past means that very often um, you're never going to get to the point you need to be or you'd like to be. So uh, there's a whole load of things that I use in the training and, and using conversations like this mm -hmm. about people mm -hmm. to think about data in a slightly different way. Um, one of them is to think about data a little bit like if you if you imagine um, somebody making furniture, if they're making furniture using uh, metal, then they buy metal in from a wholesaler, it comes in with test certificates, they know the quality of the metal, they know the tensile strength and everything. And so their challenge is how do we use the metal to make, make the furniture. If you think about a carpenter though, what they're dealing with is maybe a whole load of wood that's been out seasoning uh, some of it might have rot in it. The grain might go through interesting direction, might have a few knots in there. And so the challenge when making furniture with wood is very much thinking about how do I best use mm. the resource that I've got mm. in the most appropriate way to get the best furniture. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I think data needs to be thought a lot thought of a lot more like that latter example of, of using the wood, in that the data is never going to be perfect or rarely yes. will be perfect. Yes. And actually it's down to all of us to think about how do we best use the data that we've got. And I'll I out again, I'd sort of pick on our data science colleagues by <laughs> the way with having millions of rows of data. And before they start getting carried away about how to process it, they need to stop and think about which of, what are of that data, what should we filter out? Because actually it's not valid, it's not usable, it's not good enough. What's missing? What are the features of that data that we need mm -hmm. to, um, mm -hmm. to start, start delivering outputs with it? Yeah. So a lot of these things is about very much about trying to change perceptions. So I like that because I think what I like about that is the fact that you call yourself a pragmatist. And I, I very much call, my, I, I, always, I always think about putting pragmatic data strategies together for a lot of the clients that I work with. But, you know, interesting enough, on your LinkedIn profile, um, you've got a strap line which says data does not have to be difficult. Tell me where that came from. And I can pretty much guess how it came about, but you've had a hugely, I mean, uh, you know, vast experience, um, but many companies find data to be extremely difficult and it hampers a lot of their success in their data initiatives and programs. Tell me a little bit about why you, you, you've got this mantra and this strap line on your, on your uh, yes, well, I, I think um, for me, data, the interesting bits of data aren't the ones and the zeros. It's all the people, the process, the behavioral, the organizational aspects of data. Yeah. And yeah. so to make data simpler, to avoid it being this difficult challenge, it's about changing perceptions, about changing approach, and getting people mm -hmm. to realize that data isn't something that somebody in IT sorts out and you just carry on doing what yeah. you've always done. It's something that everybody has a part to play. So, for example, in a, let's say, a call center type situation, just because you've got Mrs. Miggins off the phone with her complaint and she's gone away happy <laughs> uh, doesn't mean you've finished that task. You need to record what was Mrs. Miggins' complaint? What did you do about yes. it? Was the compensation paid? Things of that nature. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it might slow things down. You might have to add an extra bit of time on to handling that call. But if you don't have that, then you're not able to do some effective analytics to work out how many of this type of complaint have we had. If people have just been closing calls as quickly as they can, picking the default categorization mm. for mm. a call or an issue, then the data that you're going to get at the back of it is, is going, to be, going to be a problem. And so everybody has part to play in data. It's, it's part of everybody's role. But organizations also need to potentially be a little bit more savvy a little bit more mature about thinking about when setting targets that they don't set targets that actually degrade the quality of the data so again using the call center example if there's a call target of you must handle x number of calls per hour and nobody's allowed for the fact that to do it properly and record the data you need to you need to sort of allow a little bit more time people are going to rush mm -hmm. the calls that are yep. problematic the ones where you probably need to record chapter and verse because somebody's had something really, really difficult to deal with and you've, you've got them, you've sorted the problem out. Um, they're the ones, the people who, who are dealing with those calls, the ones that are going to be penalised the most. The people who maybe get the very quick and easy calls or any, any quick and easy transactions, I was using call centre as an example there, but you can think about any transaction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The people who are doing the easy mainstream stuff, they can get the productivity up really easily. 
but that's the stuff where you don't necessarily need to know a lot of extra details. When you're dealing with an asset breakdown or a fault in a, in a railway system, if it's a big one, you need to know a lot of information about that. And it potentially will take a long time to both have resolved the problem and also record the information. But if you are the person standing in front of a customer who's, who's irate about something, if you're the person standing in front of an asset in the middle of a, a field in Derbyshire somewhere, you're the company's expert on that asset. And uh, when we think about the dimensions of data, accuracy is the one that is both uh, misunderstood, ignored, etc. Mm-hmm. And yet, mm-hmm. accuracy, the only way you can properly check accuracy is if you're actually physically, or you're either physically in front of the thing that the data represents, or at least you've got a valid surrogate for that. So I'll say the person in the field in Derbyshire, they're the ones who know whether something's blue and it's, it was described as green. So just because your your data, and again, it's, it's a lovely way, I, every now and again, if I'm I've, a bit of devilment, I might wind up some data <laughs> profile. <laughs> I think the, the most important in this bracket is what they do, the tools they've got are very, very powerful. They mm. do a lot of mm. very good things to help you understand your data, but they don't help you in understanding accuracy. Yes. And yes. So, for example, taking the data about me, so anybody who's, who's watching this to be able to see see what I look like, also if you look at my LinkedIn profile, the data about me could say that I've got a full head of ginger hair. Um, so your data might be valid. You can look at it and say it's complete. We've got all the attributes about hair for Julian. But actually, when you look at me, you realize that I'm somewhat follically challenged, that I'm very thin on top, So, and I'm not, so definitely not ginger. So just because the data exists... Yes, doesn't valid. mean it's right. Yeah. Doesn't mean that it's right, and there's some real issues yeah. there. So w- what you're talking about, to me, is very much context. Yeah, And, and the, yes. the asset itself... Wherever it may be, it, there, there is some context behind it. And people often forget that that context exists. So they don't necessarily um, work within it. And therefore, as you said, Julian's you know, got a particular kind of hairstyle. Um, he's got particular, he doesn't wear glasses, but we can absolutely see that, that, that he does. So I, I, I think this attention to detail um, is an interesting take on data quality as you've talked about accuracy and completeness and then validity and all all the good metrics that we should be looking at but organizations are simply not doing that well and I think here's why I say that and I may be saying it purely from a you know an experiential view um, and it's certainly my 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 experience but we're, we're now Data management has been around for years. This is, you know, if you think about the first set of data, it was the 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 the, the drawings on those caves of of bulls and you know people. That was the first bit of data that identified. Now, it was real. It was true. It was factual, um, and therefore we could understand something from it. And we could get insight from it. Zip to twenty twenty one, and you know there are organisations who don't know if they're data is true they don't know what is fact uh they don't actually have proper processes in place to enable that data so why are we still here why are we still talking about this subject of data quality you know why is it still you know on our heads and shoulders i mean i'm still aghast about this well, I think part of it is down to people in terms of timescale. So with my sort of more of an asset management head mm-hmm. on, 
you've got to think long term. If you're thinking about transport infrastructure, you think about utilities, you might have a railway bridge that's already 150 years old. It's got to last at least another 100 years. You've got water mains that have been in the ground for 30, 50, 100 years. Those assets need to be managed and, and, and looked after. Mm -hmm. And the data that relates to them needs to last at least as long as the assets themselves. And so you need to take a very different mindset. And I think part of it is people taking very short-termist views yeah. Yeah. and also either being taken in or choosing to believe that technology will solve those problems. So again, going back to the accuracy question, um, sorting out accuracy, it takes time. It takes yes, effort. It does. It can you may have safety issues, you may have logistical issues of getting somebody out to that field in the middle of Derbyshire. Um, I'm picking on Derbyshire, I don't know, but anyway, you, you get the idea. Um, and so assessing accuracy is actually a bit of a challenge and organisations just assume that, oh, we'll apply a bit of technology, we'll buy mission uh, sort of brand leading uh, software, enterprise growth, that and the other, implement that, the, the sales pitch is really good, it does everything we need to do missing the fact that the data that's going to support that new software the data supports the new technology much of it is the data they already have mm -hmm. because you're going to have mm -hmm. to migrate the data from existing systems into the new system so if it's already poor if you already have issues with that data then it certainly isn't going to get any better as part of that process and arguably if your data migration hasn't gone particularly well then you're going to be degrading your your data quality potentially in bulk yeah um, because yeah. quite often there will be situations where data that might be valid in one context when you start combining with other data sets you've got new use cases that you might not have thought of before mm -hmm. and if the migration if the project is taking too much of a technology driven focus they will look and say oh we'll, we'll just put it in put it in these fields because that's where it seems logical Whereas if somebody has got a business head on it, they might look at it and think, ah, we need to treat that differently because yeah. Yeah. the data is different. And I guess the point that I think is people sometimes miss is the fact that what I refer to as the data triangle, um, you've got three, three, three areas of focus that have to be balanced, that have to be present for your data exploitation, your analytics to actually work. Firstly, you've got to have somebody you've got to have a good tool set you've got somebody who knows how to drive it and make it work mm -hmm. you need to have subject matter expertise if you don't understand the domain it's no good parachuting the world's best developer in a particular tool or the world's best sort of uh, bi ai uh, analyst into an environment if they've got no domain domain knowledge mm -hmm. there mm -hmm. they, can, they can they're really limited in the value can, they can deliver and the third part of that triangle is having data of known quality so it's not saying the data has to be good, not saying the data has to be perfect, but you need to understand right. the nature yeah. of the quality. Yeah. So if you've got a, a million rows of data, it may be a quarter of a million rows actually came from another company that you bought a few years ago. They mm -hmm. have a different set of data rules, so therefore the data will have different characteristics, different features. And so any, any analysis that's done needs to take account of the fact that that quarter of a million rows of data has a different background to it. There's a slightly different context to it. And so, yeah, all these things is, is, are really, really important that you need to take that balanced view. Yeah. So in terms of the going back to the sort of data doesn't have to be difficult viewpoint is that it's everybody's job. It's a core part of what everybody should be doing. They can both see when data isn't right. They, can, they should be providing the data about whatever they're doing. 
And if data isn't right, then they've, people have got a responsibility to actually instigate a change in the data. Now, I'm not, suggest, I'm not suggesting that everybody should have right access. Right. To uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But at least they should know how to trigger a change. So, again, going back to the, the fictional Mrs. Miggins, if you've identified that Mrs. Miggins has moved um, and it, it, on the call that you've been handling, then you should know that actually this is how I instigate a change of address from Mrs. Miggins if you can't do it yourself. Um, that process should be understood by everybody. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I often hear that phrase, everybody's responsible for data. I know mm. I've said it previously, you say it, and lots of other um, people do, do prescribe to that um, view. The, the reality is that it's not that simple. The reality is that people don't have the, um, the time. People don't necessarily have the understanding. So from a, from a data governance perspective, mm -hmm. and I think this is heavily what we're talking about in terms of let's, let's bring it back upstream. Let's understand um, the relevance of data to business people. Yeah. So from a data governance perspective, what would you suggest that organizations must do to enable the business people to understand what their responsibilities are and where they start in the, in the sort of value chain of data? Um, it, I mean, that's, that's a very, very big question. Yes. Break it down. We can break it down. Break it down. So I think firstly as well is, is start organic, start small, grow from there. So rather than trying to design a perfect data governance framework, yeah. maybe having somebody offline for a year designing this, and then you try and implement it on, implement on the organization, instead start having conversations about data, get your senior stakeholders talking about data, either as part of an existing meeting, mm -hmm. or if necessary, set up an additional meeting to allow, that, allow those conversations to take place provide some metrics, work on the requirements. So if a particular business activity has a particular requirement for data, make sure that's documented and understood. When you've got requirements defined, then you can start assessing quality because quality is conformance to requirements. Yes. If you then understand the quality and you're starting to get some quality metrics coming in, you can then start to decide of these problems that we've identified, are any significant enough that we need to do something about them? So, that, so, so let me just let me just stop you there. The significance bit is mm. the interesting bit. How do you apply a a set of calculations or rules to that significance? And what do you suggest that organisations need to do um, in in so much of mm. the value of that particular significance or business driver? Yeah, I mean, in terms of the value. So, one of the um, examples I've used for a number of years now to try and explain why it's important to improve how you approach data is that I sort of paraphrase, I've adapted a, a quotation for a 1980s quality management guru, Philip Crosby, sort of mm -hmm. data, and so, so basically saying data quality is free. <laughs> are all the unquality <laughs> data, all the costs of not getting it right first time. Yep. So if there are data quality problems, they're not just, it's not just an academic thing. It's not just um, a little bit like somebody who's OCD spotting dust on the top of your doorframe. These are things that will have a financial impact on the organization. Mm -hmm. and, and what you need to be able to do is look at which are the high frequency, high impact events that in aggregate are going to make a big impact on the yep. organization. Mm -hmm. Which are the low frequency, low impact things that we can, can safely ignore. 
Mm-hmm. And then for the ones that are either higher impact, low frequency, or lower, higher frequency, lower impact, that are sort of have a balance in the middle, then that, those are the areas where it's probably a bit more room for discussion and thinking, where, where do we focus our resources? Where do yeah. we focus on improving what we're doing? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like that. Uh, and I think that's, that's good. Sorry, I cut you halfway through that, that conversation that you had, because I, 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 it's, it's often the thing that organizations don't do very well in terms of prioritizing the efforts around data quality and governance. So, but, but talking about the valuations of data, and because you're a pragmatist, I, I read an article that you wrote very recently, um, and it, it talked about valuing data. Um, and it specifically, it, it talks about the many ways that you could value data. But halfway through, uh, you sort of say, these are possibly the ways that you could do it, but I wouldn't do it like that because I'm a pragmatist. So uh, tell me about your approach uh, to valuing data and, and what's the easiest mechanism by which we can do that as organizations um, to get an understanding of that real value and, and of the asset. I think, and I, and I know you've had a number of, of people on, on your show talking about data monetization and yeah. data. In terms of the value of the data, I think there are two approaches that could be taken. One is to take a very accounting type view. Mm. Where it's something we have to put on the balance sheet. Therefore, we have to go through a rigorous process to assign a value to our data. But over the years, for many, many years now, I've had lots of conversations with people about just that particular subject. And it's a yes. different one. There are no clear guidelines. There are yes. no clarity across sectors about in this sector, this is how you do it. So potentially you could spend quite a bit of time and effort to come up with a large number, mm-hmm. may or might may not mean something to business stakeholders, um, and also could be open to questions. So there's been a, a study done recently where a large organization in the UK did some valuation and I've been having conversations with others and there's been, we've got questions about the methodology it's used, but not the fact that the value of the data is large. Another way of approaching, which again is the more pragmatic way is saying our, our data has value, it's a large figure, mm-hmm. but let's not get hung about, up about working out what that large figure is. Let's look at how we can, either, we can increase the value of that data. If you've identified that every week half of one team have got to spend a lot of time mashing data together to get the performance reports sorted out. If you can actually remove some of those sources of inefficiency, then you can add to the value of your data because you can exploit it more. Mm-hmm. And what you should be looking at is saying, and this goes back to that analogy I used about data quality being free, is thinking about what are the inefficiencies? What are the yeah. costs that we can avoid if we actually start putting things in the right way? And so whilst you still don't know the absolute value of your data, you at least are thinking, well, if we do this, then we're actually going to make a saving. We're going to increase the value of our data by X thousand pounds or dollars. Um, And that's people then start to get an understanding then if this import of effort will lead to this benefit. And then they've got more of an understanding about why it might be important to do it. And it helps deliver the the business case for actually making some of those changes and those improvements. Okay, so actually starting at it from a, um, a use case by use case uh, yeah. and specifically saying, let, let's not look at the whole because it's too difficult for us to do that. Let's look at it by um, you know, use case and priority and say, right, if this is actually going to give us, I don't know, X amount of revenue mm-hmm. um, and we'll look at this one over here and that's going to give us Y amount of revenue, 
but the the input into this is actually really good in terms of data quality, uh, what we're going to drive out from it and processes. Let's do that one. But on that side, if it's not so good, and we know that there's bad processes, and we need to fix those things, and it's going to cost X amount, probably don't, you know, chew that one off right now. Let's think about how this one actually might help that one later on. So there's other ways to look at it as well. Yeah. And it's yeah. also thinking about risk. It's thinking about the long-term impact. So yeah. not just the short-term transaction ones, because there's, there was a conversation I had with a client um, about a year ago, and they, they were taking a viewpoint of, and this is an asset-based organization, taking mm-hmm. a viewpoint of, if the data isn't delivering any value, we shouldn't be storing it. Right. Yep. Uh, which you could, you, you can you, take you could, yeah. that's valid. But in this case, the data that actually has no value or has no current value has a future value. Correct. So the data yeah. about decommissioning a facility safely doesn't have any value now or has a minimal value now, mm-hmm. but it's essential when you get to that point about decommissioning or demolishing a, an asset, particularly yes. like a power station, nuclear, nuclear energy. Right rail, if there's buried assets, hidden assets, mm-hmm. if you don't know how things have been configured, you can make some very, very expensive mistakes. Mm. And I guess the, the, the idea about uh, decommissioning or, uh, you know, saying, okay, that asset is going out of uh, production or it's, you know, we're going we're gonna to stop um, utilizing it. There is, there is value in that data because if you, if you want to actually provide a view of um, maybe another way of looking at it and adding other data to it and then getting a different view of what it might give you long-term or what it might do if we used it for a different purpose, then I guess that's the the idea that most organizations need to think about. And it, it's, for me, that's one of the things that many organizations think, well, is the data redundant? Um, it's, it's a good question because I think we need to go through that. Um, but listen, one of the things that I know you've you've also done is written a book. Indeed, yeah. And um, I haven't read it yet. <laughs> uh, I'm sure you're correct that after this, but anyway. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but tell me a little bit about, I mean, obviously you, you've had a huge, huge amount of uh, experience in the area of quality. And as you've said, you've gone back to uh, the, the, the old probably quality management and, you know, some of Deming's principles and so on. And, and, and I think that's where you've come from. I may be completely wrong, but I think that's, that's possibly where it is. It, it, you have, however, posted a number of things about the data zoo. Yes. And all of the characters in the data zoo, which are really interesting, the data anarchist, you know, the, 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 the people who are the evangelists and so on. What, what's the idea about the book and, and the data zoo and how, how, how that's having an impact with organizations? Yeah. So in terms of the book, it was one that um, I wrote with Tim. There we go. Yep. So between Tim and I, we, we, we produced the book. We've, we both are, I mean, geographically, we, we, we live fairly close to each other, which is more coincidence than anything. And okay. we've parts have crossed. Um, but it's been really interesting. We both come at this from a very different, uh, different direction. I'm very much a pragmatist. Tim is much more of a theoretical sort of, uh, he's sort of, he thinks very analytically about things. And so okay. bringing those styles together, I think, has meant mm-hmm. that we've got a, a much better approach and the book is um just to very, give a very quick structure to it, it, it it's broken into three main areas the first one 
about describing the nature of the data asset, about why it's something that's so difficult to manage, yep. which includes the aspect about the data zoo, which we'll come back to in a second. Mm-hmm. The core part of the book in the, in the middle is then using ISO 8000 part 61. Mm-hmm. As, I mean, that is the whole of the ISO 8000 series is, is about data quality. Yes. Yes. The convener for that series. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, part 61 is a process reference model that details the 20 processes that you should have in place to do good data quality management. And so we, we, we go through that in the book, explaining what the processes are, how they relate to each other, how they feed in one off the other. And then the back half of the book, or the back section of the book, is then about how you actually implement a change in an organization. Right. So you actually deliver some of these yeah. changes. Again, yeah. a more pragmatic view. So rewinding very, very slightly in terms of the data zoo and those behaviors. I mean, I think the data zoo started forming as a, a concept in my head, probably in about 2003, where at that time I was working in a large utility. Um, I had inherited a, a big asset register, the maintenance management system, program management system, investment modeling system, the data team to go with it, mm-hmm. team like that. And there, were, there was one person in particular who was a very vocal critic of, uh, and they say, that data's rubbish. <laughs> what are you doing about it? Well, the data is about an asset that's on your patch. Yes. My team can't go afford the time to go out in vans looking at all of this. And so it just started going through because it also turned out that that individual had got some of his team gathering data. They were doing, doing surveys, putting mm-hmm. data on spreadsheets that they were keeping locally. Ah, uh, right. Um, and so then that's where the concept of the data squirrel and the data anarchist, they started to sort of come in and the whinger. Uh, and, <laughs> I did see that, yes. And, the, and, the, and the, they're, all, they're, all, they're all extremes. They're all yeah. there. So I think most people actually do try and do quite a good job around data. Mm-hmm. And sometimes mm-hmm. organizations don't necessarily put the right framework around them to allow them to be more effective. And sure. so the behavioral traits, and they are behavioral traits rather than personality traits, they're actually very much driven by the environment that somebody is working in. Mm. So if somebody is your star performer in one team, if you then parachute them into your worst performing team, they will not necessarily lift the behavior of the whole team because they don't want to be ostracized. They don't want to be the one seen as being the, the different person. So they will tend to adopt the bad behaviors of the team rather than maybe, I mean, they might be able to get some good behaviors in, but more than likely than not, they will actually more will, they will lower their performance to that of the rest of the team. Right. Yeah. Get the benefits you you, you think. Um, from a data perspective, the two behaviours I think are really interesting and have a lot of impacts. Really, is one is the data squirrel. Mm-hmm. So they're the kind of people who, whenever you've got a question, they will have a folder somewhere. They'll have a display. They might even have a file <laughs> document. They'll be able to you ask them a question and they'll say, hang on, I think I know, I know where yeah. that is. They'll throw yeah. it away somewhere and come back. Oh, yeah, we did this in, in 2005 and that's how we did it. You, you, mean, you mean they'll squirrel away somewhere, not ferret away somewhere. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I know the person you're talking about. And so, but, but in terms of that, it's, it's, it's an interesting set of motivations because they're actually very often they're delivering a good service to their colleagues. Mm-hmm. They're actually applying that knowledge. They're helping people out by yeah. that knowledge that might, might not be easily accessible. However, if you're the poor soul in the centre of the organisation, maybe trying to come up with a strong overall strategy, trying to identify what data we've got and where is it, you don't necessarily see the information that the data squirrels have got. To Correct. Yeah. 
So yeah. part of the challenge is about saying, well, how do you get them to be willing to hand over their data mm-hmm. to do enough mm-hmm. to look after it, yeah. and know that they can update it later? Um, and so that's one set of challenges. The other set of challenges relates to the data anarchist, and that is the kind of individual who doesn't matter what the corporate system is, they want to go ahead and create something in Excel or Microsoft Access or other tools yep. that rival that core system because they think they can do a better job. They may be critical of what was been done or they feel that it should have been done differently. So this is how we're going to do it. There are some, and I did have one in one of my teams for a while, who is just a natural maverick. Whatever the rules are, Yes. Follow rules. They've got to find a new way of cutting a path through whatever <laughs> um, whatever challenges they've got facing them. And again, very similar to the data squirrel, the data anarchist is somebody who provides a good service to their colleagues. You don't necessarily know where they are because they're quite quiet very often. Yes. Um, but again, in the center, you can't see their data. You can't see what they're doing. So mm-hmm. they're grading the overall value of the corporate. Right. Right. So one of the some- yeah. drivers of that which is, is really interesting and i think it's one where sort of listeners might might want to question their own, their own mind their own organizations is if your process for approving spend on it projects for approving changes maybe adding extra fields to an existing data store or system if that process is so rigorous and burdensome and slow and it's really difficult for somebody to follow that process through if they've got a valid business need comes through, maybe they're working in a regulated industry and the mm-hmm. regulator said, in four months, we need you to provide an answer to this question. The person might know that actually, ideally, it should be put into our core system, but actually it takes so long to put, get a form in, chances are they're going to say no anyway. So let's yes. just create it in Excel. Yep, yep. So then your data landscape has now got one step more complicated. It's been fragmented more. Actually, yeah, yeah yeah no i i get that and i i think there's 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 good and bad as you said about the squirrel and about the the anarchist i think the the anarchist is is in some way um that you know as you said the maverick but equally can you know some good can come from from the way that they think and the way that they they do stuff um in terms of their uh, will to challenge perhaps yeah. Um, and, and identify other ways of doing it. Um, but it's interesting that you talk about those two people. Um, and uh, I, I, think, I, I think now I, I will definitely read the book because I do, the third chapter sounds like the right chapter for me mm. um, or the third part of it, I, I think, yeah. because we do a lot of data quality work with organizations. So for, for us, it's that change piece is what I talk about up front. So I really want to have a look at what your, um, your, your change yeah. bit is about. So that's good. Listen, the, 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 the other thing I want to speak to you about is um, two things that you've done very recently. Mm-hmm. You've uh, launched two new BSI standards. Yeah. BSI, sorry, BS10102-1 and BS10102-2. What are these and why are they needed now in organizations? So they are a pair of standards that work together that were originally, they were sort of instigated by a desire within the British Standards Institute to make sure that there were some standards reflecting big data. Because mm-hmm. obviously data mm-hmm. big, and they thought we need something to do this. So there's a group formed and I was a key part of the group who were looking at that saying, well, how do we break this down into something that's meaningful? 
is big data sufficiently different that means that actually it's needs its own set of standards? And we've identified that um, they actually the, the boundaries between what is big, inverted commas, data and what is everybody else's data, yes. it's, it's, a, it's a moving feat. It's a, yeah. it's a very flexible boundary. So everybody has got data that in their context they might think of as big and other people wouldn't. Um, and so actually many of the principles are comparable that can be used across organizations. And so part one of the standards about the data-driven organization mm -hmm. is looking at what are the things that you need to do to be a, to, to work more effectively as a data-driven organization. And part two is about data-intensive projects, thinking about what's the nature of project, why might you do it, how do you handle and respond to the fact that if there's a large reliance on data or a large amount of data being created, you need to do it in the right kind of way. So it's, mm -hmm. it's a pair of standards that is there very much to add to the library of other data-related standards. It's not there trying to replace others and say, oh, this is better than that. Mm -hmm. But they're trying to act a little bit more as an umbrella, bringing together some different strands and different, different areas. Okay, fantastic. Um, and your wider work on the BSI standards. Um, how, how did that start? And how, you know, for example, if people out there want to get involved, how do they do that? Um, so that for me, the way it started was through uh, works. So I've been involved and I've been a member of the Institute of Asset Management for many, many years, helping mm -hmm. develop a lot of their guidance, particularly relating to asset information. Mm -hmm. And on the back of that, um, the Institute of Asset Management have been approached by BSI when there were a number of standards being developed around BIM, around building information modeling. Right. And I was suggested that I sort of represent the Institute of Asset Management on those groups. So started having conversations around PAS, what was PAS 1192 part three at that point, then it became part four and then part five, and then they, became, they got converted to an ISO. But also as part of that journey, and some of the conversations I was having was also through my knowing Tim. Mm -hmm. And so therefore Tim King sort of slowly got me roped into a little bit in some of the uh, mirror committee that's looking at the ISO 8000 world. Right, and the yeah, data quality, yeah. yeah. And then from the back of that, it's a little bit like in um, Star Trek getting absorbed by the ball. You start having conversations <laughs> with some people and you find you're gradually getting absorbed into this world. Um, it is interesting. I mean, it, it, it's one of those things that it, it's good if you've got knowledge and interest in a particular area. Yeah. And it's, it allows you both to expand, expand on that knowledge, to express mm -hmm. it, to help create something that's of value to others. Mm -hmm. But also the conversations that you have cause you to think about both the concepts and the way you think about things, how you explain, explain them. And so it actually works both ways. You're both sure. giving something to the wider community actually you get something back out of that so if you want to get involved i mean there's um typically the start point or i think for many people will be if you're a specialist in a particular area is that you might get involved in one of the many and there are hundreds of committees mm. start getting involved in the committee in your national standards organization so in the uk it's bsi um and it may be that you represent a particular professional body so if you're in a particular profession and you've got an interest in a particular area, then you might then be, be taken on as your, your professional body's representative on XYZ committee. Mm -hmm. And then that starts you on there. And then as projects, yeah. you can start to get involved in those. Um, 
And I think it is, it is interesting. It's an interesting process. It gets you to think about what you're doing and why and how you express things and how you can mm-hmm. um, avoid some of the ways that, and this was a good example in the asset management world where um, Pass 55 came along, it was developed in the UK, primarily sponsored by the Institute of Asset Management. That's now become the ISO 55,000 suite of standards. Right. A lot of the original concepts are still the same. But there have been quite a few areas where some of the terminology and the concepts had to be um, adapted and amended because what was uh, something that was reasonably easy to explain in English didn't necessarily translate into other countries, into other languages. And so there has to be a way of making sure the standards can be universally applicable, Mm -hmm. they can Mm -hmm. be translatable into other languages without Mm. lots of meaning. And so some of the debates and the discussions are about how we actually make sure things are expressed in a way that is fairly universally applicable. But also in the world of standards, one of the things I've been doing, so I mentioned earlier about the BS 10102 mm-hmm. standards, helping yep. to bring things together, is some of the work I've been doing recently has been helping to unify some other areas of standards because you have some of these standards committees are hugely busy, they're creating a lot of good stuff but they're not always aware of or make it, keeping the links up with some of the other bodies. So okay. the asset management community, uh, they wanted to look at information management and decision-making. So mm-hmm. I put my head forward and I put up my hand up and said, yeah, I want to be involved in that because I can see there's some gaps to fill in. The BIM community have been creating a whole load of stuff about how you do information management sure. in the built environment. Yeah, yeah. Very well. Asset management said what needs to be done, but didn't say the how. The BIM standards gave a lot of the how. I saw it thousand, particularly part 61, also then puts an overlay of the quality aspects. And all these three actually would merge together and they support each other. Mm-hmm. So I'm a firm believer in trying to avoid reinventing the wheel. If somebody's already got something out there that works, let's try and adopt it. Let's, yeah. Try, yeah. It up. let's try and make sure and explain the relevance if somebody hasn't fully understood why something might be relevant. And then work that way rather than creating about, oh, this is our version of yeah. Z concept because we, we didn't quite like the words that we used in the other one, so we'll create our own one. And we miss the fact sometimes that um, the, if you like, the, the public, the audience for this, are the people who are actually trying to find guidance, they're trying to work out, we have a problem in this area, we might have a problem in data quality management. So how do we, where do we go to get a better understanding of data yeah. management? Data in the built environment. How do we get? How do we do that? And 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 that's why it's really important that we actually remember that the audience are not the other boffins, not the other experts in different. No, it's people who need to use it. Yeah, and not the focus. Yeah, and I think it's it's really important to remember that because one of the things that you know some of our clients are housing associations, and you talk about the built environment. And you know, you talk, you 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 just look back at the the hacker review, and you look back at all of the areas that that were quite damaging in terms of data um, for for the built environment. So I think that's really important. But people don't understand that the standards and regulations behind that is huge, you know. And if you get it wrong, the regulatory aspect is is unbelievable. So I think it's hugely important. It's not something to be glossed over. Standards can be, you know, often looked at as, like, oh, my goodness, I've got to read this big document. But they're a lifesaver in, in, in that sense. Um, one last question. BCS, you do a lot of work for it. What's happening there? Um, yeah, so I'm chair of the BCS Data Management Specialist Group, and I've been doing that. And funny how time flies when you're enjoying yourself. We've been doing that for over 10 years now. Wow. Um, 
And so that, so the BCS uh, is the Professional Association for IT in, in the UK, but it also got international chapters as well, um, split into specialist groups and branches. And a lot of the activities of those, those groups is about organizing events, about helping people mm-hmm. more about a particular topic. And so a lot of what we do, and we've got in June, we've got a um, virtual conference that we've got set up with Dharma UK, where we're going to have 10 webinars over a week which are just all exploring about making data good for society. And so we've got a whole range of speakers there. Mm-hmm. That's one example. Getting involved in standard-related work, that's another bit on the back of it. So the BS 10102 mm-hmm. work, I was representing the BCS on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, the BCS is going through a bit of a rejuvenation at the moment. It's, it's for a number of years, it had a certain way of doing things. And now there's a very definite sort of, uh, both a desire to change and the momentum starting to build for how things are changing, about how member groups are collaborating between each other, about how the central administrative functions are supporting the member groups and vice versa. Okay. So generally, it's all moving in in quite a different, quite a positive direction from having, sort of arguably, I might be slightly controversial on this, maybe a few years ago, a view of, Perhaps got a bit stagnant. It had been yes. They've got a certain way of doing things. Yes, again, I agree. You yeah. need a bit of a, a lift to rejuvenate themselves and get them. I think so. I think so. Well, Julian Schwarzenbach, thank you very much for being on the show today. It's been a pleasure to speak to you, and uh, I look forward to reading your book and uh, just continuing to follow you on 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 everything that you're putting out there. Yeah, thank you, Samir. Enjoyed the conversation as always. And uh, yes, hope you enjoy the book uh, and anybody else enjoy it as well. But uh, <laughs> yeah. more chats. Yeah. Okay, thank you very much. Take care.